Do you love your work? Do you think it's possible? Well, you're about to find out. It's time for 48 Days to the Work You Love with Dan Miller on the 48 Days Online Radio Show. Whether you need a professional tune-up or a work overhaul, this is the program for you. Now, here's your host, Dan Miller. Well, good morning or good afternoon, whatever time of day it happens to be when you're tuning in. Thanks for being a listener here. This is Dan Meller. We're going to spend the next 48 minutes talking about questions that you can relate to. Questions that have to do with uh, refining your idea, how to find investors. As usual today, we got a broad overview of questions that will help you take your idea, put legs on it, knock it out of the park, and join the ranks of those who are already doing so. If you haven't checked it out already, you ought to check out the 48days.net group. Now, I, I say that, and, and people probably think, well, golly, that's making Dan another half million dollars a year, you know, having that group. Well, it, it's one of these things that seem almost counterintuitive. There's no cost to be involved at 48days.net, and I mean to be involved. I mean, you can do anything there that any of the other members are doing. You can ask questions. You can start your own group. You can get involved in groups that are already going out. You can post your event. If you've got an event and you're going to be charging people $339 to come, you can post the event there. So you can do all those things. Now, do I benefit? Absolutely. I'm not quite sure how. Sometimes I scratch my head because it does require uh, some consistent time to be involved there. I like to personally welcome everybody new. Incidentally, if you've been if you've been a new member coming in the last week, you may not have gotten a personal welcome from me because we really did get hammered with new members. We had about 700 new members come in. As a result of uh, being on the Dave Ramsey show and then Martha Stewart radio, doing a couple other live interviews. And so we got a lot of new members and that's cool. And I, I could not keep up. There was just no way. I mean, I started calculating if I spend three minutes apiece welcoming new people, it would have sucked up a good portion of my week. And I wasn't prepared to do that. So consider yourself welcomed. But uh, for the most part, yeah, I do go there and comment on things that are happening give input where I can on blogs, but uh, what a great, just a great community. I mean, it's one of the most exciting things I've ever been involved in to see people coming there, sharing ideas readily, taking advantage of the brain trust that we have there. I mean, this is like having a board of directors on steroids. I mean, it's like putting things out. We talk a lot about crowdsourcing. I mean, we just had a new logo. If you have been a regular in 48days.net, you notice this week we've got a brand new look including a new logo. Well, to get that new logo, we put it out on 99designs is the one that we happen to use. There are several like that where you put it out just to give some parameters for what you're looking for, maybe some examples of what you have been using, and people jump on it. Now, we award a prize. In this case, it was, I think, $300, so it's not much, but we had amazing talent that got involved in that process and helped refine our ideas for a logo and ultimately gave us what you see there the 48 days with the eagle coming out the right hand side i'm excited about it and love it uh, but that's the kind of power that you have available without paying anything on 48days.net and a lot of people are finding that out as they are involved there well just a reminder if you are a listener here, you know you can shoot a question in that I'll answer in an upcoming podcast. You can just shoot that to Ask Dan at 48days.com anytime, or you can use our Google Voice number. That number is 
729-4848. A couple upcoming events we've got going on here at the Sanctuary. We've got our Coaching with Excellence event coming up. I'm excited about that. I always enjoy the live events we do here where people show up. We can shake hands, eat together, and get to know each other on a much more intimate level than we do virtually through the websites or through email. And then also coming up again in September, and we got a lot of people registered for this already. It's an added event that we put in because the response to the first one that we had, and that's the Right to the Bank event, how to turn your writing into income. You, If you're one of the 81% of Americans who say you want to write a book, you might think about joining us there. You can check on any of those. Of course, just click on the green barn that you see on any of the sites that will lead you right to the live events or the you know what? I'm not sure they we have the green barn up there anymore. Well, I mean, Missy and Ashley have been doing a lot of changing, so uh, but there's information that'll lead you right to those events. Well, let's jump right into the questions that we've got for today. This one comes from Adam, who says, "Dan, I'm considering starting my own mobile advertising business. I would be targeting small businesses and selling a service where they could pay for advertising on the side of a trailer." See freestreetads.com for pictures and videos. I would need to hire a rock star salesman and someone to drive the mobile ads. My question is, what's the best way to get and retain rock star employees? Well, a great question, Adam. And any of us in business look for those rock star employees and really they're pretty plentiful out there. Now, a couple of things. I did go to your, your site, Free Street Ads, and Frankly, I'm not sure I'm thrilled about the name you've used, Free Street Ads, because they aren't free. Now, you, you show that you'll do a little demo for somebody or give them an ad for a week or something, but ultimately you're looking to sell ads, and I think the name misdirects people. I'm not sure why you chose that. But anyway, I'm sure you've thought that through, just my input on that. If you say free in the name, it implies that it's free, and if it's not, then it's going to give people a, a setback when they realize it's really not free. Well, to, to find rock star employees, treat people extremely well. I mean, you got to make them feel like they're part of something that goes beyond just getting a paycheck. I mean, I've had interesting experiences experimenting with employees over the years and I find that a lot of times people will work harder for a $15 plaque that's given to them in front of the other employees than they will for a $500 bonus. So find out what motivates the people that you have. But but you're going to recognize rock stars. And I mean, you can walk through a local mall and you'll find a couple rock stars who are working in those retail stores. Now, not a whole lot, but you will find a couple who are there uh, knowing that they're looking for something else. And if you present them a better opportunity, they'll bolt in a heartbeat. Uh, you might want to give your salespeople a percentage of all gross revenues, regardless of where those come from. So you're going to have a salesperson and rather than just paying them X number of dollars, obviously you want to have them on incentive for increasing revenues. You could do the same thing with a driver who has an incentive. If you have a trailer being pulled around town with these rotating advertisements, and that's certainly a common phenomenon. The first thing you want to do is what I call due diligence. Find out what are the people who are already in that business doing We've got these cool little trucks that drive around town, and they've got these rotating panels on the back, which 
give you multiple billboards as they're driving. Find out what they're doing. Find out how they're paying people, how they're paying their drivers. I mean, that's just will short circuit a long process to get the same information that you want anyway. So make sure that you're doing that. But then, yeah, I would I would incentivize everybody who's involved as they help increase revenue. They get a part of the profit. Jason says, I'm 39 years old. I've been working with the same company for 21 years. When I started, I was 18 and an executive gopher. Through God's blessings, I've climbed the corporate ladder. Now I'm manager of one of the manufacturing departments. Uh, Didn't go to high school or didn't go to college beyond high school, but I did receive an associate's degree in pastoral theology about five years ago. Now he talks about he felt like he was really called to go into a full-time ministry position with his church, and then at the last minute that didn't really work out, so he stayed where he is. And now Jason says, I'm miserable at my job because I'm on salary and I'm working 60 to 70 hours a week. Doesn't leave time for much time for anything else. My department runs 24-7. I'm the only supervisor manager with 24 employees under me. The job is very demanding, very stressful. I feel I have enough knowledge that I could run my own business on my own time for my family and with my family. I was in Pigeon Forge, Tennessee in April this year, stumbled across your book, No More Mondays. Since reading your book, I've been welling up inside to go take back my life, do something for God, for me and for my family. Been exploring ideas and started my own business and getting back into doing more ministry work as well. I would love to just quit my job and go pursue my dreams, but I do have a wife and three children that I love dearly, need to take care of. Plus, my wife is very scared of me doing such a thing. I'm realistic. No, that is not the best thing to do, but I do know that should not stop me from going forward with my dreams now and put myself into a position to quit later. I've explored ideas and talks about the things that he's um, has explored here. Well, Jason, you know, you're on the right track. I mean, knowing that you have a clear idea of what you want to move into is a great starting point. Also, I commend you on having done a faithful job where you are so that they value you being there. But I think this is probably an and solution, not an either or. Now, you've identified there's a couple things I want to identify here, really three points, perhaps. Being a provider for your family is very important. No question about that. You recognize that you do have to do that. You do not have the opportunity, the right to just quit your job and then just hope things work out. When you have a wife and three children, yes, you need to be a provider. You need to have a plan for that. But here's what I would suggest. If you're considered valuable at your job, which you obviously are, chances are you could scale back in your hours. You know, companies are great at just piling more work on. When you're willing to do it and when they know you're a go-to guy and they can count on you. But that also means that if you are valuable, you're in a negotiating position to say, you know what, guys, over time, we've just allowed a lot of things to creep in here. I really have an agreement to work for you 40 hours, not 70. We need to identify the things that I am absolutely essential in doing and scale back the time back to what is based on our original agreement which I suspect is true. You know, I've worked with a lot of people who, where we've done exactly that, where I've had people come in. I had a guy come in who was making about 130 a year, and he says, man, my work is just crippling my, my personal life. I have no life of my own. I need to quit my job. Well, in looking at what he was doing, 
He was very valued there. It was a great fit. It wasn't off track in any way. He had just never learned how to say no. And so his responsibilities just keep kept creeping up. I had him go to his boss and say, look, this is choking the life out of me. I have no life. I'm burning out at work. I'm not going to be valuable for you here anymore if this keeps up. And his boss says, yeah, gee, I agree. Let's scale this back. He scaled back to those things where he really was valuable to actually less than 40 hours a week. He started playing cello in the Nashville Symphony Orchestra again. He took over as head of the bookstore at his church. He got involved in his son's programs at school. He, he started bike biking again. He's a serious cyclist. All these things gave him a new spark of energy and excitement and enthusiasm about his work as well. It didn't require that he left his work. He didn't take any kind of bump down in compensation, but he simply put it back within some reasonable guidelines instead of allowing it just to keep growing and growing and growing. And I would suggest you start there as well. So you got to provide for your family, but if you're uh, valuable at your job, I suspect you can make some modifications, negotiate back to a more reasonable schedule and commitment there. Number three, doing ministry and fulfilling your calling can be done in a lot of ways. You might be able to move into an application where your ministry and your method of generating income are the same, but maybe you can't. But to start a new business to generate your family income, you may find that's much more challenging and time consuming than just making modifications in what you're already doing. Well, Don says, Dan, I've been an aircraft mechanic for 12 years. At first, working on aircraft was fun, but now I'm burned out. It's an up-and-down industry. (laughs) That that struck me as funny. Aircraft industry is an up-and-down industry. That's true. And he says, I really need stability. I was laid off for a year, went from making $20 an hour to working at Walmart, making $8 an hour. And then after a while, back to working on aircraft again, which I'm currently doing now. My wife said I was more, I was happier at Walmart than I am now. I guess I love working around people. I still have dreams, Dan. When I was a kid, I dreamed of working for a television or radio station. Also, I was really good at drawing cartoons, but somehow it was stolen from me. I really don't know how. I wonder, is it too late for me? Is it too late for me to go to school and learn the things I always wanted to do? I don't know, but I feel like I'm too old. It seems like everybody around me knows what they want to do except me. I'm very frustrated. I'm ready for change. Just don't know what to do. Any advice you have, I'll appreciate it. Don, well, Don, I'm not sure how old you are. You say you've been working as an aircraft mechanic for 12 years. If you started at 22 years old, it means you're 34 years old. I mean, I'm not sure how how long or how old you are. But uh, you could obviously be in your 30s. Is that too old? Certainly not. What if you're in your 40s? No, not too old. What if you're in your 50s? Uh, Nope, still not too old. What if you're in your 60s? Uh, Nope, still not too old. You know, it really is never too late to redirect and do what you are most passionate about. It's never too late to get additional training for that, if that's what you want to do. I mean, if you're 45 years old and you're still scratching your head about this, let's say that you start a program we're doing it part-time. It's going to take you four years to complete the training program. Wow, you're going to be 49 years old. Guess what? In four years, you're going to be 49 years old, whether you are now positioned to do what you want or you're positioned to just continue doing what you don't want. 
I would suggest you take plan A, get the training, get the additional information that you need to make you a candidate to start at 49 doing what you really want to do. I mean, I tell people, and in working with guys especially, I mean, guys are so prone to this kind of argument that, wow, I majored in the wrong thing in college. Now I'm 27 years old. I guess I just have to coast into the grave. I mean, what a horrendous position to take. I often tell people, men and women included, do whatever you want to do for the first 50 years of your life. If we can at 50 sit down, take a fresh look at how you are uniquely wired, what you're most passionate about, what are those recurring dreams that keep popping up, We can create a clear focus and from that find a great application for meaningful, purposeful, and profitable work, and you can go into the most productive 20 years of your life. I mean, don't you see that played out more often than not? I mean, this is not a matter where if you don't make the right decisions, you're, you're toast. And all of a sudden you realize you're 35 years old and your your options for making significant change are over. That's not true in today's environment. Now, if you're laying railroad ties, by the time you're 35, you may realize that your physical energy, your physical prowess may be declining. It changes your options. But, I mean, that's not the kind of work most of us are talking about doing. We're talking about things that involve service, information, technology. You can be 65 years old and decide you want to be a pro in eBay marketing and in 30 days, no more than 98% of the people on the face of the earth. You can make that kind of redirection and you can do it quickly because we're talking about information. We're not talking about something where you've got to do 65 push-ups to be a candidate. So please don't go in the direction that you're thinking you're too old to make a direction into doing something you really want. Now, that being said, you probably are looking at creating a transition plan where you don't walk away from your being paid $20 an hour as an aircraft mechanic. But knowing that you are probably doing that 35 or 40 hours a week, again, we have 168 hours in any given week. Each of us has that. Look for that discretionary time, those hours that you can carve out where instead of watching TV, or just sit and twiddle on your thumbs, you are investing that time in making yourself a candidate for where you want to be two or three years down the road. Go in that direction. You know, I, just uh, recently I wrote a blog on on retiring, titled it Ready to Die, Just Retire. And I talked about the fact that our culture has kind of conditioned us to expect that we deserve to retire. Posing that as a very positive thing where we can quit this stinking thing called work and just sit around and do nothing. Well, that's a horrendous kind of model and and really not an admirable goal at all. And, And research shows readily that those who retire at age 55 have double the risk of dying before reaching 65 as compared to those who work beyond 60. I mean, there's a real correlation between retiring and dying. The time frame collapses dramatically between retiring and dying. People who continue working often are productive into their 80s and 90s. Interesting connection there. Well, I also quoted in there from the prophet, poet and philosopher Cahil Gibran, who says this about work. He says, you work that you may keep pace with the earth and the soul of the earth. For to be idle is to become a stranger under the seasons and to step out of life's procession that marches in majesty and proud submission toward the infinite. 
So my encouragement is, you know, don't become a stranger, even in the later seasons of your life. Don't step off that uh, merry-go-round or however you want to visualize it of, of meaningful, purposeful, and fulfilling work. Gahil Gibran continues, and to love life through labor is to be intimate with life's innermost secret. Work is love made visible. Boy, I love that kind of framing of what work is. Work is expressing love to the world. If your work is not that, yeah, look for the adjustments. And this doesn't mean some soft, airy-fairy kind of work where you're patting people on the back and, you know, wishing them well. No, I mean expressing love. You can do that by, you know, growing organic vegetables or by, you know, crafting better automobiles or hot rods. I mean, my gosh, you can do manly kind of things and still be expressing love to the world in your work. Well, I better move on here. This comes from, ooh, I missed the name here. Oh, no, Jeanette. Jeanette says, I'm a 60-year-old woman. I found out last year I have muscular dystrophy. I did not think anyone my age could have this condition, but I've been hurting more in the last few years and getting tired more easily. I've been a nurse for 35 years and did find a sedentary part-time job last year. It pays half what I was earning. I support my sister and myself. She gets disability. I'm buying my house. My question is in regard to two student loans I took out about six to seven years ago. I was trying to get a master's degree to obtain an easier job that paid well. Um, That's not going to happen. In light of my health condition and financial situation, is there any way to get a student loan forgiveness? I hope you have some words of wisdom. In general, no. That is something that is not forgiven student loans. Even if you file bankruptcy, those remain those continue with you. So you better take very seriously obligating yourself to student loan debt, no matter what the purpose. And again, if the purpose is just so you get a piece of paper to get a better job, you're likely to be disappointed. If in fact you get additional education for the learning that takes place, then fine, then do that. Now you still have to frame borrowing money. Borrowing money for education is Usually not a great idea. You should never borrow more than what you're likely to make in your first year of unemployment after graduating. So that at least gives you some kind of guidelines. If you're going to be a teacher, you better not have more than $30,000 in student loan debt. I mean, even if you're going to be a doctor, you better not have more than like 100000 in student loan debt. I mean, for these young guys to come out of medical school or law school with three and $400,000 in Student loan debt is preposterous. There are a whole lot of docs and attorneys who don't make that in a given year. And the ones who have that kind of debt end up having that held over their head for the next 20 years. Now, that being said, let me address Jeanette's question here. She's a nurse. She's 60 years old. And she has student loan debt. I don't know how much. She didn't state that here. There are some programs to modify student loan debt. One is called Income-Based Repayment, IBR. It's kind of a new option for federal student loans, and it can help keep your loan payments affordable because it's based on your income. So it's going to make your loan payments less than 10% of your income. Now, what that'll also do, it will theoretically, I hate to even say this, it will theoretically eliminate the balance of your loan payments after you've paid for 25 years under these qualifiers. 
So if it reduces it to 10% of your income and you pay for 25 years and you still have student loan debt, yes, it can forgive that. Now, that may not be very encouraging when you're 60 years old, Jeanette, uh, but there is that. There also, check with the Health Resources and Services Administration. Again, it's Health Resources and Services Administration because there are specific programs for loan forgiveness for nurses depending on where you work, what kind of work you're doing, and all of that. Now, what that means is that usually for maybe two or three years of service, you're going to receive, you can get up to 60% of what your total qualifying nursing loan balance was. See, I'm not sure that's even going to apply here if you were trying to get a master's in something else. Now, if it if the master's was going to be in nursing, of course, you didn't get the master's either. I, I'm not sure. You're going to have to check, but there are specific programs if you're in nursing that may help you with this as well. And then there are also what are called PSLF, Public Service Loan Forgiveness. And you can be eligible for some loan forgiveness if you are employed by a nonprofit or any tax-exempt 501c3 organization. If you are a federal employee, if you work for the state, local government, or even tribal government, if you're in the Peace Corps, I mean, there there are some things like that that you can get some help. It's not easy. And for the most part, if you have student loan debt, you need to just plan on paying that and pay it back as quickly as possible. And if you've got kids, help them figure out creative ways to get it, whatever education they want without getting student loans. One of the things I'm proudest of, my kids, my daughter, who actually works for me, you hear me talk about her a lot. She and Nathan, her husband, uh, both got degrees, actually got two uh, degrees. And in that, didn't have any student loan debt. Now, obviously, I helped her a little bit along the way, but there was no student loan debt at all. They started with a fresh, clean slate, and it's allowed them to get things in place properly, financially, very quickly in their marriage wish I'd had the same kind of input and advice given to me. Okay, where am I here? All right, Dan, this comes from Josh. Josh says, I truly enjoy your ideas and podcast. I want to share a couple of business ideas. One, a full service laundry. The idea is that with both parents working, the mom would appreciate if the laundry was already done when she came home from work. It would be washed and folded. My idea is to pick it up once a week and take it to a laundromat along with other clients, return it at the end of the day, maybe charging $25 a week or so. If this is a bad idea, I just want to know why, and maybe it's obvious. No, it's a great idea, Josh, but I'm, you're not the first one to think about that. And again, what you need to do is find other services that are doing exactly what you're talking about. There are a lot of laundromats that have people picking up other people's laundry and bringing it there. So you're going to have competition. You're going to have other people that are doing it, but that's the first place to start in structuring your own business idea. Who's already doing it? How are they making it work? It may be by the piece or by the load rather than a flat fee. I would suspect that it is. Charging $25 a week is going to vary dramatically if you're doing laundry for Dan and Joanne Miller, where there's just two people who don't sweat and get dirty a lot, or if you're doing it for a family that has five kids. So I doubt that a flat fee is going to work. It's going to have to be related to the actual quantity of laundry. I mean, there are services for dry cleaning that are like that, where you simply pay the ordinary fee, but the service that is doing the dry cleaning then compensates the person bringing it to them as high as 40%, 40% of 
the revenue being generated. Now, Josh has another idea. Another one I had was a garage self-mechanics could rent if they don't have a place to work in their own cars. I don't have a garage or off-street parking right now. I like to be able to save money, change my own oil and other minor repairs, but don't have the place to do it. This isn't a good idea either. Why not? Now, that one I really doubt is a good idea. And the reason is not because the idea itself isn't great. It is. But because there we have so much concern about liability. And when you start talking about a place where you're going to have oil and grease, for one thing, you're going to have, you know, um, EPA requirements for discarding oil and grease. They're extremely stringent on places where that can be done. You can't just rent a garage in the backside of your apartment complex and have people coming in there to change their oil. EPA is going to be all over you because the requirements for containing oil and gas are extremely stringent. So you're going to have that to contend with. The other thing is just flat liability. If you have somebody who rents it from you, they pay you $20 an hour to use it, and they come in there. Uh, just last week, one of the guys I use as a mobile mechanic is a guy who comes out to my house and does great work. He was working at somebody's house, had a car jacked up, a Suburban, and because of the heat, the asphalt gave way and the car fell down on him. Now, he's okay, but he really did have major damage. I mean, he had the axle assembly. The rear end came down right on his chest, screamed for help. There were four guys nearby who came over and just manhandled the vehicle up enough that he could wiggle out. But he's got some internal damage. Doctors told him not to do anything for a month. Of course, he sat on the sidelines for three days and started working again. That's another story, but that's the kind of worker he is. But there are going to be liability issues coming at you every direction. And I suspect that you're going to have more of those to contend with with this idea than you could possibly overcome in renting the space out. So it's it's one of those ideas, you know, it, it sounds great. Is there a need? Yes. Would it serve a great purpose? Yes. But I think the mechanics, the logistics, I shouldn't use the word mechanics in this case, but the logistics of making the business work to cross all your T's and dot your I's are going to be more than what you contend with. Unless you just do it, you know, in a back alley and do it without having a proper business licenses and all that, which I would never recommend. But to really keep it clean as a business idea, I think, is going to be tough. Now, again, do a quick Google search and see if anybody's doing that. But it's like I would love to be able to go back to the old days. The first car I ever had was 1931 Model A Ford. I paid $75 for the body and started working from there. Uh, then I got an engine, a Chrysler Hemi engine, started working on that. When I had, you know, 20 bucks, I'd go to the local junkyard owned by a classmate of my older brother, name was Melvin Beck, and the junkyard was just outside of a little town, Johnsville, Ohio. It grew just to be gigantuan, but again, back before we had all the kind of rules and regulations we do today, but this grew, and I would go into that junkyard. I'd just go out and find whatever part I needed, pull it off, and bring it up, and then they'd tell me how much I needed to pay them for it, but I got all the parts to build my car from ground up out of the junkyard just by salvaging parts on other cars. I love that kind of model. That kind of model is very difficult to make work today, again, with a liability. There are a couple companies that are doing that, but again, it, it's complicated. So even though it's a, it's a great idea in many ways, it's just tough to make work.
Well, let's go to an audio question here. Charles from Michigan called in. Let's listen to his call. Hey, Dan. This is, Dan, this is Charles in Michigan. Um, calling with a question. I've got a business I'm looking to start, about $75,000 of startup capital needed, and I do not believe in debt. What advice would you give someone uh, to generate startup capital for a business um, without getting uh, themselves in a debt and not taking on investors to pay back? Thanks. Well, you kind of identified the answer to your question. If you don't believe in debt, then you aren't going to find the 75000 because I mean, if you aren't going to bring in investors, investors create debt. Borrowing it from a family member creates debt. Going to the bank creates debt. Getting a small business administration loan creates debt. I mean, all those are just various forms of debt. So unless you're looking for uh, winning the lottery or having somebody just drop a check in the mail to you, I don't know of a way that you're going to get the money. That being said, can you start a business without debt? Sure. I mean, let me give you a quick example. I mean, everybody thinks that you need a lot of money to start a business. And, and some you may. know. I don't know what you're wanting to do. But let me give you a very real example. Had a young couple come to me. This was years ago. They were Italian. Uh, his name was Giuseppe Squalacci. Uh, I just love saying that. That's actually his name. But uh, he was working as an outside salesman, yeah, doing okay, but just hated what he was doing. I said, well, what do you want to do? You know, well, ultimately he wanted to have a Italian coffee house. And I said, golly, what would you call it? What would it look like? What kind of items would you serve there? What kind of music would be playing? He was like, man, I don't have any money. I said, well, that's okay. Just Describe to me what it would look like, you know, what kind of music would be playing. Well, he was really into the music scene, and he would describe very quickly what it would look like, blah, blah, blah. I said, okay, I want you to do some research. So I had him do some research in Gloria Jeans and Starbucks and all the other coffee houses. You know, what's it take to get one going? And those that are franchises, you know, told him very quickly, well, you have to have between one hundred and eighty dollars and $220,000 to open a coffee house. He came back all dejected. I said, that's okay. Don't listen to them. You know, what would it look like? Gee, what kind of food items would you serve? Who would work there? Whose skills would you need to complement your own? Now, to make a long story short, we opened an Italian coffee house called Cafe Milano right next to an Italian restaurant, as it turns out. Just incredibly fortunate. Stripped the wall in between the two businesses. It exposed an old brick wall, which just added to the ambiance. I helped him pull up the carpet in the place. He just painted the concrete. He got used chairs and tables and did a splash paint treatment on those, which made them look really cool. Rather than being cheap, it made them look like a really cool exotic design. He had a local artist hang art on the wall. Most expensive, uh, most the biggest expense was $3,500 for an espresso machine that he put on a credit card lock stock and barrel he opened the doors for that place for under five thousand dollars now that was when everybody was saying you've got to have two hundred two hundred thousand dollars to make this work no you don't do it in a way that fits you now that little business was very quickly a success because of the ambiance there had a lot of interesting people like um, amy grant and phil driscoll who would come and play there to only handle about 80 people wall to wall and the guidelines were such that we were restricted to 80 people but it was a, a very quick success, starting with what he wanted. Now, he started with a dream that he thought was unreachable. We just simply started with what he had. And I'm confident you can do the same. Again, not knowing exactly what your business is, but 
start with whatever you have. I mean, I started a business one time where I wanted to do auto accessories. I was going to do them for the new car dealers. So I was going to do them on site for the most part. And this was pinstriping and storage garden wheel up molding. And then ultimately we added rust proofing and stereo systems and sun, sun roofs and roll bars and all kinds of things. But I didn't have any money, but I started with a $300 investment in the adhesive tapes that I needed to do the striping part. I started with that 300 bucks worth just out of the back of my car. Then I advanced because that did really well. Then I bootstrapped the business, which means then I used profits from the business to grow it. And ultimately we had, you know, a a small fleet of vans and we had then a, a warehouse that we would bring automobiles into it and grew the businesses in that way. But I'm a big believer in bootstrapping a business. Yeah, don't obligate yourself to a lot of debt, but believe that there's a way to start the business you want to start anyway and just do it in a way that matches whatever finances you can put into it. Let's take another caller here. Hello, Dan. My name is Chester Williams from Mississippi. I was calling and listening to your podcast for a while, and I was wondering about becoming a product demonstrator or a product distributed for different electronic products, and I was wondering if you had any idea how you contact the companies or how do you become get into that. Uh, information you give me would be helpful. Thank you very much. Goodbye. Well, thanks for your question, Justin. He's asking about product demonstrations. How do you get those kind of jobs? You know, I'm one. I'm just a simple farm kid at heart. I don't like to make things very complicated. When I go into Costco, where we're a member, I see all these product demonstrators standing around. If I wanted to get a job in the same thing, I'd go right straight to them and say, how'd you get the job you have? What are the other opportunities with the company that you're working for? Who do I need to talk to? I'd go right there. If you want to go to an electronic store, you talked about that, same kind of thing. Go there. I mean, I can't walk into Best Buy without having a product demonstrator doing his thing in there somewhere. Just ask him. Ask him. The other thing you can do, thank goodness for Google. If you put in, well, you don't want me to do this. Hang on. Product demonstrator jobs. All right. I just Googled product demonstrator jobs. I got 269,000 results in 0.36 seconds. <laughs> now, it's, it shows their product demonstrator jobs, in-store demonstrator jobs, product demonstrator jobs, and it goes through. You're going to find tons of help there for how you can do that. Yeah, find something that you're excited about, a product that you really care about. I mean, I love talking to these ladies, like at Costco. They've got the new food products there a lot of times and they're demonstrating those and ask them about what they do, how much they enjoy it, how many hours a week they have to commit to it, how broad a geographic area that they have to travel to. I mean, those, those things, the information about that is not difficult to come up with. I commend you on having that kind of interest and just pursue it in that way. You're going to get options in 24 hours. You're going to know what it takes and where opportunities are. And the cool thing about what you're asking as well is that is not just a traditional J-O-B. The amazing thing is that may look like it's something really cool to do, but it's not the kind of thing where you just walk in and fill out a job application. You have to be a little more creative at finding how do you get connected with people who make those kind of decisions. And because it takes just a little bit more creativity, there are a whole lot fewer competitors. Fewer people are going to apply. I mean, the easiest thing to do is show up at Taco Bell or McDonald's and just walk in. They're going to have 100 other people today do exactly the same thing. 
But if you find something that's just a little bit different in application, golly, how can you do that? The other night we were at Chick-fil-A. And here's this dude walking around who had balloons on his head, and he was loud and boisterous, and he would make any kind of balloon animal that your kid wanted. No cost for that, but tips were accepted. Now, I don't know. I was trying to do a calculation. I told Joanne he spends way too much time with any given family. He'd walk up to a family and spend 15 minutes there. And, man, if they tipped him five bucks, I mean, it's hard to make that work. I said, he's spending too much time. He needs to move faster. Go to more people. Anyway, it's not my business, but I couldn't help but think, what are the logistics of that? But that's a creative thing. I mean, could you do that? Are you good at doing that, making balloon animals? Could you walk into a restaurant and say, hey, you don't have to pay me anything. I'll just work for tips, but it'll entertain your people, make the kids want to come back here again. Yeah, love those kind of ideas. Daryl says, Dan, in one of your books, you intrigued me by the prediction that there'll be more jobs in the future for people whisperers. Obviously, we don't see the term people whisperer in job listings. So could you tell me some types of job positions that require this skill? I'd also appreciate hearing a little more about who people whisperers are. What kind of personality do they have? What skills are essential? What passions might a people whisperer have? Now, this is one of those things. I mean, look at the new kind of terminology that we have for positions in the workplace. If we move the clock back three years, I mean, we're not talking that long, three years. And we said, this person is our social media consultant. I mean, people would have scratched their head. Nobody had a clue what that was today. That's a real popular, extremely profitable arena to be in, a social media consultant. So a lot of it is just framing what you're doing so you can describe, and obviously a social media consultant is going to show people how to use Facebook, Twitter, blogs, podcasts, newsletters, websites, how to integrate those things to really get your brand out there, increase your marketing exposure, increase your audience. What are you going to do as a people whisperer? Well, the, the, the immediate kind of implication of that is that you're going to do what used to be called perhaps mediation or arbitration or conflict resolution, or you could have been called an optimal work performance coach or a corporate culture enhancer. I mean, there are a lot of terms that are going to imply kind of the same thing, but a people whisperer is going to be somebody who, you know, you know, somebody who uh, listens well to other people. Um, what are some of the things that people, somebody who understands what things lead to conflict, somebody who understands body language, a voice, volume, energy, use of words, good listener, understands communication, how communication goes beyond words. I mean, that's going to be a people whisper. Now, what are the applications for that? Well, again, in that kind of broad generalization, I mean, any company out there is a candidate. But what are the kind of organizations where somebody with those skills would be valued? Well, in the same way as a social media consultant, I mean, pretty much any company would be a candidate for that. But you may want to identify it's going to be hard for somebody to justify a people whisperer where they have five employees. So you may think, well, the the area between 50 and 100 employees where they may not have a human relations um, professional, they may not have uh, um and they may not have specific tasks, so it may be valuable to them to have somebody who really understands kind of the dynamics of working together as a company is growing. So you position yourself clearly for that and then market yourself clearly for that. And I think, again, I think that's a cool way to find unique opportunities and to you know move forward with that. Absolutely. 
Let me grab a couple more here. I'm going to watch the time. But this one comes from Jenny, who says, Dan, now this is a pretty interesting question. Uh, This involves a whole bunch of issues. Listen to this. First of all, thanks for your show. Okay, I'm a true fan. My dilemma. A few years ago, a friend shared with me an idea she had for a cooking product. It was a pretty great idea. Before she told me about it, she asked me to sign a non-disclosure agreement, which I gladly did. All these years later, I know for a fact that she didn't end up taking her product idea anywhere, and I think it has real potential. It's a fantastic concept, one that I believe the Pampered Chef would buy into. I would like to try to develop the idea, get a prototype created, and work on launching the product. But I'm not sure if I'm still bound by the non-disclosure agreement I signed, and I would prefer not to alienate a friend. Is there a statute of limitations on the document I signed? And more importantly, is it ethically wrong for me to try to get this product to market without my friend's blessing? I don't want to make enemies, but I do want to make some money. Golly, what a great question. And yeah, there's a whole bunch of things involved here. Typically, now I suspect that what you'd signed as a non-disclosure may have been something that your friend just came up with. If you have a copy of that, then you ought to go back to that original agreement and see what, in fact, did you sign. Real, true non-disclosure agreements are going to have a time frame stated, and it's usually three to five years. I mean, ideas can't be protected forever. Ideas are going to reappear And if this is a great idea, it's surprising that it hasn't come up in some form already. And for that, you might check out to see if, in fact, it has. Go to USPTO.gov. That's the United States Trademark and Patent Office. USPTO.gov. Do a quick search for anything like this idea. So if it's been more than three to five years, chances are the nondisclosure will not really hold up. It's certainly going to be gray beyond that. Another point here. And then I want to really address the most important issue in this. Probably what you're talking about would require perhaps a design patent. You're talking about a product that maybe Pampered Chef would want. So chances are it's a designed patent application, not a utility patent. Utility patent is going to be a chemical formulation or it's going to be like developing the next Polaroid camera. But here you're probably talking about something that makes a better apple peeler or salt shaker or something. I don't know. We've got lots of Pampered Chef stuff in our house. Trust me, Joanne has everything. If that's true, even if it were patented, you could probably make a modification and do something with it. Now, here's a very important point, and then I want to give you the most important point. But the, the, the third really important point here is the value of an idea is in creating a plan of action. The idea itself is approximately 2% of the process and the value. 2%. I mean, having the idea is not 99% of the, the value. It's a very tiny part because the value is in somebody like you taking the idea, developing a plan of action and doing something. So the idea itself really doesn't have a lot of value. That being said, Yeah, it looks like there's a lot of momentum for you to do something with it. But that being said, relationships are more important than making money anyway. I mean, is this somebody that you still know, that you're still in contact with? If so, don't try to do this behind, you know, under the radar. Go to your friend and say, you know what, that thing you developed a long time ago, that idea you had, did you ever do anything with that? You know what? 
I think I could mess around with that and do something with that. You know, would that be okay with you? Chances are they're going to say, well, sure, I'm too busy. You know, I never did anything with it, blah, blah, blah. Just go on. But I would address the relationship part of this issue before I would just go ahead and hope the person never found out about it. What you're doing, you're setting the stage for some kind of potential litigation where you just go ahead. You think, ah, whatever. I never heard from her. I'm just going to go ahead and do it. And then you do develop the idea. It becomes the next hot product with Pampered Chef. And all of a sudden, your neighbor sees it and said, oh, my gosh, that's my friend, Gene, who developed that. I gave her that idea. She signed a non-disclosure. And believe me, you're going to find some rabid attorney, even if the terms have expired, you're going to find some attorney who will go after that if there's any kind of success. So I'd clear the air in the front end. I mean, I suspect that it's not going to be a big thing to do. Let me know what happens on that. But I would go to the person who had the idea and just, you don't have to say, gee, I think I'm going to develop this and make a million dollars. Don't do that. But go to the friend and say, you know what? I think this still has merit. Are you going to do anything with that? Man, I'd really encourage you to do something. Chances are, if they haven't done it now, the person's going to say, nah, not going to happen. You can say, you know what? I think I'm going to make these little changes to it and perhaps do something. Would that be okay with you? That's the way that I would approach it. Great questions all the way through. Golly, I love answering questions. I love thinking, having to do research in my own. Again, as we come up with resources, things I've mentioned here and in previous podcasts, we list those under the podcast links at 48days.net. Now, we've integrated the sites. This is something I've been wanting to do uh, for about five years now. Actually, we haven't had the .net site that long, but integrating my blog and everything together, Finally, everything is together under just 48 days. So no matter where you go in 48 days, you'll find connections so that everything is blended and integrated. Thank goodness. A major upgrade, and I'm delighted for that. And incidentally, it cost about a tenth of what it would have cost a couple years ago because uh, functionality has become so much more ubiquitous and just just common. Very easy to get uh, talent is amazingly easy to tap into, and we've got a wonderful team that's made all this happen. But thanks for being part of the 48 Days family in whatever way that you are, for being a podcast listener. Again, just shoot a question to askdan at 48days.com. If you've got a question, thanks for being part of this show, and uh, thanks for being part of this process where we all are figuring out not only how to find or create meaningful work, You know, it really does go far beyond that. I mean, having meaningful work is wonderful. I love doing something that I enjoy every single day. But having a life that matters goes far beyond that. Meaningful work is a part, but make sure that not only meaningful work, you're creating a meaningful life as well. 